Claudia, un silencio. And uh yeah, okay, I'll keep on one headphone in. Sorry about technical difficulties, but let's get started. Welcome to Sunday School. Thanks for being here. Well, we're we're talking about the gospels today. Our title is the, the Gospel Truth. And this is part of our introduction to the New Testament. Uh, I'll skip the review for what we did last week, but you know that we talked about the New Testament as a whole. But we're we're transitioning to the, the four Gospels themselves, and we love these books because they tell us about the life of our Savior, Jesus Christ. But perhaps you've heard someone say that the, the Gospels have a number of differences in them, and how can we believe these Gospels when they contradict one another? Why are there these differences in the Gospels? Isn't that a sign of contradiction? Well, how would we respond to that question? Ask yourself right now. How would you respond to someone who says, hey, the differences in the Gospels show that we can't believe them? This question represents what is sometimes called the synoptic problem. How do we account for the differences in the Gospel accounts if each writer was writing about the same life? that is, the life of Christ. We want to answer that question today, and we'll see that far from calling into question the believability of the gospel, the differences in the text actually affirm the reliability of the gospel account. There is no true synoptic problem, but we're going to see more specifically why that is. Here's our outline for today's class. We'll first consider why did the authors write the gospels? We'll then discuss why we have four Gospels, and we'll finish by considering how we should understand the differences in the Gospel. Let me pray. God, I thank you for your provision. There's still a way that I can come to your Calvary. I pray that you have blessed this time. Amen. Let's start by investigating why the Gospels were written. Perhaps the answer seems obvious to you. Considering how important Jesus is, why wouldn't you want to write about it? But let's see what the Gospel writers themselves say. Because in two of the Gospels, we have explicit statements as to why these works were written. And we're going to look at each, starting with Luke. So open your Bibles, please, to Luke chapter 1, verses 1 to 4. And we'll hear why Luke wrote his Gospel. By the way, when we refer to these books as Gospels, I want to make sure we understand that term. What does Gospel mean? Good news, yeah. It means good news. Evangelion in Greek. Or Evangelion. So we, so when we say Gospel of Luke, we mean the good news of Luke. Or more accurately, the good news of Jesus Christ according to Luke. In the Greek, the title given to these books by later readers is simply according to Luke. But we call it the Gospel according to Luke. The Gospel just means good news. Alright, let's read Luke 1. Chapter 1, verses 1 to 4, and hear why Luke writes. Here's what he says. Inasmuch as many have undertaken to compile an account of the things accomplished among us, just as they were handed down to us 
by those who from the beginning were eyewitnesses and servants of the word, it seemed fitting for me as well, having investigated everything carefully from the beginning, to write it out for you, in consecutive order, most excellent Theophilus, so that you may know the exact truth about the things you have been taught. All right, let's observe this thing. Notice that this is written for a certain Theophilus. This Theophilus is called Most Excellent, a phrase that is later used in Acts by those addressing the Roman governor Felix and then the Roman governor Festus. Theophilus, by the way, is a common Greek name. It means lover of God or lover of a god. It's not a uniquely Christian name, but it's actually common in the Greek world. Notice that Luke's name is not mentioned at all here, nor is it mentioned anywhere in the Gospels. We'll talk in a moment why we still conclude that Luke is the author of this work. Notice that Luke acknowledges that he was not the only one to write on this subject. It says that many have undertaken to compile an account of the things accomplished among us. And notice Luke's position in relation to the things accomplished. He does not claim to be an eyewitness, but he says he is one who, along with others, including Theophilus, has received the teaching from those who were eyewitnesses and servants of the word. Luke says that he decided he would write an account as well, but notice his method. Luke carefully investigated everything from the beginning. Luke did extensive research beyond what he had heard initially from the eyewitness. Luke wants to be an accurate teller of history and give this history to Theophilus in consecutive order. And why? Well, notice the purpose taken in verse 4. So that you may know the exact truth about the things you have been taught. Luke is saying, I want you, Theophilus, to be totally confident in the message that you have received. I don't want you wondering or doubting about any part of the good news regarding Jesus. I want you to know the exact truth, therefore I write. Notice Luke acknowledges that Theophilus had already been taught about Jesus, but Luke wants Theophilus to be totally confident in the truth, to know that truth exactly and be confident in it. All right, so a few interpretation questions. What can we determine about who Theophilus is or what kind of person he is? Well, who could say something? He appears to be a man of some importance or authority, because that title, most excellent, that's used elsewhere to apply to important people. He appears to be a Gentile. His name is a common Gentile name. He has a position of secular authority, not usually occupied by Jews. And we'll see that the Gospel of Luke itself, as we investigate different Gospels, we'll see the Gospel of Luke itself is very much oriented towards Gentiles. So it makes sense that Theophilus would be a Gentile. Theophilus appears to be a Christian. He already has been taught about Jesus, but Luke wants Theophilus to become more confident in the truth. And he appears to be a real person. With a name like Lover of God, I might suggest that Luke wrote to an imaginary person who was a stand-in for any Christian lover of God. So he's addressing all Christians by addressing this metaphorical lover of God. But there are enough personal details here to suggest that Theophilus was a real person, not just a stand-in. This is not to say, though, that Theophilus was the only intended recipient. 
it was common for writers in the Greco-Roman world to address a literary work to a wealthy patron who would later provide the financing for the publication and dissemination of the work. We see this in non-Christian writings as well. So that could be somewhat a sum of what is going on here. Moreover, Luke is probably aware that he writes not only to benefit Theophilus, but many other Gentile Christians who similarly need assurance and greater understanding of the gospel. Now think a little bit about the history involving Jew and Gentile, discussed later in the book of Acts and in the Pauline letter. Why might new Gentile Christians need assurance in the gospel? Yes, Pete. Okay, yeah, they might not be as familiar with the Old Testament and not sure how the salvation message they've heard connects with the previous revelation. And Luke definitely does make a number of references to the Old Testament. And that, I think, is part of it. That could be part of it. But why else might a Gentile need, a Gentile Christian need further assurance of the exactness of the gospel? Remember, what's one of the main issues that Paul has to deal with, especially in Galatians? You or Danny? Yeah, there, there, many of these Gentile Christians, they heard the message from Paul. They believed the salvation message, but then these other preachers started coming in and they say, no, 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 you, you're not saved yet. If you want to be saved, you've got to become a Jew. And so they might be feel, feel confused about the gospel. Wait, am I saved or not? What is the message that saved? Did Paul or others alter the message whenever they gave it to us? And certainly there were Jews who were persecuting um, the Jewish believers. They were treating them like they were false believers. So the Gentiles who are observing this, they've got the Judaizers, they've got the persecuting Jews, and they're not as familiar with the Old Testament. And so you can understand that they might have some questions. Is the gospel that we heard the true gospel? Or has it been altered? And I think that is one of the things that Luke is responding to. Luke is assuring these Gentile Christians, Theophilus included, that the good news of salvation <clears throat> that was first taught by Jesus and later by his apostles has never required ritual observance of the law for salvation. And despite the Jewish and Judaizing opposition to the contrary, Gentiles are included in the contrary, um, included in the gospel without becoming Jews. So as Dr. Keith Essex said in my New Testament studies class, Luke writes a history to prove from another angle what Paul proves by argument in his letter in Galatians. Oh, sweet. Okay, thank you. Ah, my arm was getting tired. Okay. But how do we know it was Luke who wrote the gospel? Now, basically, it's a process of uh, analysis. 
considering the New Testament as a whole. Whoever wrote Luke also wrote Acts, since the two books are very similar. Acts even opens with, a, with the writer referring to his previous work given to Theophilus on the life of Jesus, which is certainly what the Gospel of Luke is. But in the book of Acts, the writer uses the first person to describe his own travels with the Apostle Paul. Therefore, the writer of Luke and Acts had to be a Pauline companion who is, however, not specifically mentioned in Acts. So it's not going to be Timothy, it's not going to be Silas, it's not going to be Apollos. It's somebody who traveled with Paul, who could have written these works, who nonetheless did not mention himself by name. Now, we know that Luke was a companion of Paul. We know he was a Gentile. We know he was a physician because of some of the other things written in the Pauline letters, Colossians, 2 Timothy, and Philemon. But Luke is not someone who's mentioned by name in Luke or Acts. So process of elimination. We, we look at these criteria. Who could have written it? Who was not mentioned? And the only one who, could, who fits the bill is Luke, the Gentile physician. And that's the view of the early church. They said Luke was the writer, which is interesting because that makes Luke the only Gentile writer of Scripture. And he wrote about a fourth of the New Testament in these two works, Luke and Acts. Very important. So one reason that the Gospels were given, as we see from the Luke of introduction, the introduction of Luke, the Gospels were written to give greater confidence and assurance in the message of salvation received by believers. But this wasn't the only reason that they were written. Let's now look over at John chapter 20. Let's hear why the Apostle John says he wrote his account of Jesus' life and ministry. You have a question, Danny? That's a good question. We know that, uh, let me repeat it. Did Luke know that he was writing the inspired scripture, even with that phrase, the exact truth? We know that the other, some of the other scripture, uh, some of the other writers knew that they were writing scripture, as we talked about last time. Certainly, um, the apostles were aware. Was Luke aware? I think you could argue that he was. Um, I don't know if I would come down super confident on that. He wasn't an apostle. He was under the oversight of an, of an apostle, but certainly he was trying his utmost, and we can see in the. Looking back at it, he was writing scripture. I think he could have been aware, but um, I'd have to think about that a little bit more. But let's look at why John writes his gospel. John chapter 20, verses 30 to 31. Let's look at those verses. So just a couple pages over. Actually, a number of pages over. Now, understand where these come. These verses come in the context of John. Luke wrote his purpose in the beginning of his gospel. John gives his more towards the end of the gospel. These come near the conclusion. This is right after Thomas expresses belief in the risen Christ. And Jesus responded to Thomas, Because you have seen me, have you believed? Blessed are they who did not see and yet believed. And then, verses 30 and 31. Look at those with me. Therefore, Many other signs Jesus also performed in the presence of the disciples, which are not written in this book. But these have been written so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that believing you may have life in his name. Now, observe with me briefly on this passage. Notice the term signs. 
when this term is used in the Gospel of John, it's another word to describe Jesus' miracles. Miracles proving who he is, the signs of who he is. And notice the author's admission of selectivity. It says he did not write about all the signs that the disciples witnessed. Later on, John will say in the last verse of his gospel, and there are also so are there also many other things which Jesus did, which if they were written in detail, I suppose that even the world itself would not contain the books that would be written. So John admits he didn't write everything that he could have written. But why did he write what he did? Well, he says, so that you, the reader, may believe that Jesus is the Messiah and Son of God. By believing in him, you will have eternal life in his name. So unlike Luke, who's John's intended audience? If he's saying, this is written so that you may believe, what have they not done yet? They haven't believed. John is primarily writing to unbelievers. And as I think I argued last time, unbelieving Jews. This is a more evangelistic gospel. John wrote his gospel so that those who read it or heard it shared by Christians might be saved by believing in it. So then we see two purposes of the gospels, to bring about salvation by belief in Christ and to strengthen the faith of those who already believe. Now, why four gospels? Couldn't one or two have been enough? Well, perhaps, but God's wisdom dictated otherwise. You may be aware of a certain statement regarding the witness of the testimony, or witness or testimony from the Old Testament. When it came to a court of law, how many witnesses were necessary to establish a fact? Two or three. But how many does the New Testament provide? Four. So, based on that Old Testament statement, more than enough. It's not that every... Everything the Bible says has to be confirmed by two or three writers, but this is just, that may be one of the reasons why we have four. But there's also a unique emphasis in each of the Gospels. Yes, they all describe the life of Jesus, but the writers had specific purposes and audiences in mind when they were reporting Jesus' life. Now, according to Dr. Essex, remember, he's a professor here at the seminary, I'm persuaded now, he has a view, and I'm persuaded of this view that is borne out in the Gospels, that you have two Gospels written primarily to Gentiles and two Gospels written primarily to Jews. And within each pair, you have one that's intended for unbelievers and one that's intended for believers, primarily. Now, obviously, it's going to be useful for either, but it has a specific emphasis to unbeliever or believer. And you can see the chart. I actually pulled this straight from my notes from the New Testament Studies course. You can see the chart that I put on the screen. So the Gospel of Mark is intended primarily for Gentile unbelievers. And you could even say new believers who are spreading Jesus' message to the Gentiles. While the Gospel of Luke is an account intended for Gentile believers. Meanwhile, the Gospel of John, as we saw, is an account intended for Jewish unbelievers. While the Gospel of Matthew is intended for Jewish believers. Strengthen them in faith. Now, this is not to say that if you share Matthew with a Gentile unbeliever or ask them to read Matthew, that you're doing something sinful. No, but if you, we do want to appreciate and maximize the, what appears to be the gospel's original designs. Now, it's also common for us to speak of the gospels as highlighting different aspects of Jesus' nature. You may have heard Mark presents Jesus as servant, Matthew presents Jesus as king, Luke presents Jesus as human, and John presents Jesus as God. Well, this is okay. There is something to this, but as Dr. Essex counsels, 
we need to be careful not to overemphasize this division. It's not as if we don't see anything about Jesus' humanity in John, or we don't see anything about Jesus' deity in Matthew. We do. All the Gospels emphasize these different aspects of Jesus in varying degrees. For example, and I think you can appreciate this because the pastor's been going through Mark, one of the reasons why Jesus' servanthood is so astounding in Mark is because Mark shows that Jesus really is Israel's king and God. That's what makes his servanthood so great. So we just want to remember that caution when thinking about distinctions between the Gospels. Now, consistent with these different purposes and different emphases, you may have noticed, if you've read through the Gospels, that they're not completely the same. First of all, they don't all discuss the same events. For example, Mark and John say basically nothing about Jesus' childhood, while Luke and Matthew do. But even within Luke and Matthew, they don't mention the same parts of Jesus' childhood. The visit of the Magi is in Matthew, but not in Luke. And the visit of the shepherds is in Luke, but not in Matthew. So they don't all talk about, or they don't mention all the same events. Second, of the events that they do all share, the Gospels don't necessarily discuss the events in the same order. Now, we're very accustomed to modern histories, which generally record events happening in strict chronological order. But ancient histories, while chronological, were not as strict in their chronology. They allowed for some historic episodes to be moved around within a general time frame to emphasize a particular theme or point, what we would call topical organization. So it's not that the authors say that the event happened at two different times, rather they chose to report that of the event that happened in two different spots in their narratives. For example, if you've ever read through both Matthew and Luke, you'll notice that they don't present the temptations of Jesus in the wilderness in the same order. Both record three main temptations in the wilderness. But Matthew had the temptation to make bread, then the temptation to jump off the Jerusalem temple, and then the temptation to worship Satan and receive all the world kingdoms. But Luke flips those last two. First bread, then temptation for all the world kingdoms by worshiping Satan, and then the temptation to jump off the temple. Why the difference? Why this rearrangement? Well, the answer is debated, but certainly it has something to do with what each author wants to emphasize about Jesus and about his temptations. We can certainly see a progression in the magnitude of temptation in Matthew. You start from the most seemingly innocuous temptation to the most heinous compromise. Luke appears to have wanted to emphasize something about Jesus ending up in Jerusalem. One of the things that's striking about Luke and Acts is the emphasis on Jesus and then later Paul's journey to Jerusalem. You may recall that one statement from Luke. He set his face toward Jerusalem, talking about Jesus. He, the, Luke, as a narrator, he wants to understand there's this drive to get to Jerusalem. And I think that's pro- present even in the temptations. He wants to emphasize Jerusalem. That's not quite the same emphasis in the other Gospels. So we do have this sometimes within uh, a general time frame of things happening, sometimes a, a movement of where those events are reported between the Gospels. But the overarching event order is certainly the same. Now we can easily, more easily, compare the different Gospels and whether they report a particular event or not 
by using what's called a harmony of the Gospels. You may have used a harmony or something that comes from a harmony study before. And the results of a harmony can take different forms. In your Bible, you might have some harmony notes related to various section headings. For example, if I go in my Bible, uh, I, using the John MacArthur Study Bible, if I go to Luke chapter 4, verses 1 to 15, the section title provided by the, the translator says the temptations of Christ. But then right underneath, it lists the same event where it takes place in other Gospels. There's a reference to Matthew 4 to 1 to 11 and Mark 1, 12 to 13. So by just looking at that note, I, I know as a, a reader of that Bible, oh, okay, this same event is described in the other Gospels in these other sections. So that's one place you might see harmony indicated. You can also buy a harmony presentation of the Gospels themselves. John MacArthur has one called One Perfect Life. It's a book where all the Gospel texts, the four Gospels, are blended into a single account so that you can read each event uh, with the most complete viewpoint possible. So let's say we get to the Temptations of Christ, and the, the book will feature each Gospel's writings about that temptation right next to each other so that you know what every Gospel writer said if he said anything about it all at once. And you can see more easily how the Gospels complement each other, how they connect. Also, if you have a study Bible, you might have a chart somewhere in your Bible which shows the specific events of Jesus' life and where they are reported or not in each Gospel. Again, using the John MacArthur Study Bible, if you go to the beginning of the New Testament, there's a bunch of introductory material. I imagine other study Bibles are similar. And within that introductory material is a harmony of the Gospels. And the pretty long chart that lists the different events of Jesus' life in, in chronological sequence, and then within those events, where the more specific events take place in each gospel. And you may say, but I don't have a study Bible. I don't, I don't get to enjoy this harmony stuff. Well, actually, you can, because you can just get the stuff online. You can go to a study Bible website like blueletterbible.org, which is where I went, and I picked up a piece of a harmony chart, and I put it on your screen. This is what Blue Letter Bible gives as a harmony for one section of Christ's life, Christ's ministry outside of Galilee. So if you look at the whole chart, you'll see the progression where Jesus is moving and uh, the main events. But within those events, you can see what's happening and where it's reported in the Gospels. So just take a moment to look at this chart. You may notice a few things sticking out. One, Matthew, Mark, and Luke are obviously pretty similar. You can see the three columns, they all are reporting, or nearly all reporting the same events. Uh, Luke, Luke doesn't mention one of the things that Matthew and Mark do, but they're pretty similar. And here we have all the Gospels following the same order in describing these events. This isn't always the case. Sometimes they'll, they'll take it in a different order, but for this section, they're all going in the same order. But you also notice that John hardly overlaps. <laughs> John doesn't describe most of the events given here. So they got three books that are really similar, three Gospels really similar, and John very special. This is why, the, by, why Bible scholars often refer to Matthew, Mark, and Luke as the synoptic Gospels. It's just a term that means their content is really similar in general. But John is most unique, omitting many of the events that are in the other three Gospels, but including many events that are not in the other three Gospels. So this provokes two questions. 
Why are the three synoptic gospels so similar? Well, let me just get out of the way. No, it's not because there was one original gospel that the writers merely copied. This is what many liberal scholars maintain. Ah, that's why they're so similar. Rather, it's because they're all describing, here's the real reason, they're all describing the same historical events and representing the standard apostolic teaching of the day. So they, one of the reasons they're so similar is because they're all describing things that actually happened. But as many of these apostles ministered together for a time in Jerusalem, it's not... Um, it's not strange to understand that they had a consistent message. Yes, each apostle had his own emphases, but there was agreement among the apostles as what was important to report about Jesus' life. There are certain things that are essential. The apostles are all giving a consistent message, and their gospels reflect that. And the gospels of those who were under their teaching reflect that, their associates. So we can understand why the synoptic gospels would be similar. But why then is John so different? Well, it's not because John was a rogue apostle or anything. Again, liberal scholars, their explanation is, oh, John, he comes from a totally separate Christian tradition. He's like a, a contradictory view and it later got fused by the early church. No, this is not true. John's gospel still accords perfectly with the other three. Rather, the uniqueness of John comes from the unique situation of the gospel's writing. Now, I've listed... Oh, let me go back to the other chart. I've listed here um, some dates with these with these books. These are Dr. Essex's. These reflect Dr. Essex's view. John MacArthur might be a little bit different. Others might take a, a little bit different view. But you can see most scholars agree that the Synoptic Gospels were written much earlier than John's Gospel. John's Gospel is likely written 20 to 30 years after the other Gospels. Um, during which John's attended audience was experiencing something very different from what the earlier gospel writers had. All the other apostles were martyred at this point, and John, as the only surviving apostle, is probably aware of the existence and the circulation of the other three gospels, Matthew, Mark, and Luke. So, as he was inspired by the Holy Spirit, he did not desire to simply cover the same ground with his gospel. Rather, he wrote a gospel from a different perspective to complement, not contradict the other gospels, and to minister specifically to the people he was writing to in his own time. So that's one of the reasons, or that, that explains why John's gospel was a little different than the others. Now, this idea of complementarity is central to all the gospels. We come back to our question, though. If the Gospels are true and accurate, then why are there differences among them? But by now, you've already seen the answer. Gospels were written, from were written to different audiences. And they were written in different situations. They were written from different perspectives. Even though they're all writing about the same history, they're written from different perspectives and with different emphases. And these perspectives don't contradict each other. Rather, they complement each other. This is natural, considering these, um, these differences in background, it's natural to see some differences in their accounts. It's like four ancient viewers who are observing a sculpture. They're observing an ancient sculpture, but they have slightly different angles on that sculpture. They're all seeing the same object, but there's going to be some variation in their report of that object, some different emphases, different things that they talk about and they don't talk about. By reading these 
reports, and by appreciating each perspective, we ourselves can gain a much fuller picture of this grand sculpture, even though we don't have access to the work that they were observing. To apply that directly to the Gospels, because the Gospel writers have differences from each other, we can actually get an even fuller understanding of Christ and his work. Actually, if the Gospel writings were too similar, that quality itself would make them suspect. For consider, police work. If two witnesses report the exact same story, detail for detail, what's the usual conclusion by the police? It's rehearsed. This is not a true testimony. They conspired to give a certain account because it's not natural for people who should have different perspectives, different emphases, to report the exact same thing detail for detail. So it is with the Gospels. The differences in the Gospel accounts don't make them less credible. It makes them more credible because these differences, perspective, audience, and purpose, they are natural and expected. Now, before we close, hopefully we have enough time to go through all this, let me alert you to two kinds of situations you might find in the Gospels when it comes to their differences. And at first, when you encounter these things, they may seem like contradictions. But they're not, actually. Here are the two different situations. Number one, when you encounter similar but distinct events, similar events, similarly described events, but they're not actually the same happening. There are two different events. For example, someone might say, hey, the Gospels give a contradictory account of the woman who anointed Jesus with perfume. Luke 7 says it was an immoral woman in the house of a Pharisee at the beginning of Jesus' ministry. But John 12 says it was Mary, the sister of Lazarus, at their home in Bethany right before Jesus' crucifixion. But they're anointing Jesus' feet. They've got the perfume. They're wiping his feet with their hair. You, they're, they're describing the, the, the same happening, but the reaction of the people and the onlookers is different, and it's presented in different contexts. So we've got a contradiction. Well, actually, there's a simple answer to this contradiction, and it's that they're actually describing two different events. They're similar, but they're different. They're distinct. It just, just so happens that you did have someone who anointed Jesus' feet towards the beginning of his ministry, an immoral woman, and but you also had someone anoint Jesus closer to his crucifixion. And there are a number of differences in the passages that emphasize, yes, these are not the same event. Even though at first they may seem like they are the same. This is a um, similar situation with Jesus cleansing the temple. John 2, John chapter 2 says that Jesus cleansed the temple during the Passover at the beginning of his ministry. But Matthew 21, Mark 11, and Luke 19 say Jesus cleansed the temple at the beginning of Passover week at the end of his ministry. So is John repurposing the cleansing of the temple into a new chronological spot? No, it's another example of a similar event happening at a different time. Jesus cleansed the temple both at the beginning and at the end of his ministry. And you can even see in the passages what Jesus says in each instance is different. In John 2, he says, destroy this temple and I'll rebuild it in three days. But he doesn't say that in the other cleansing. He says something different. But the fact that Jesus had to cleanse the temple twice 
and Israel still rejected him, shows Israel's utter spiritual bankruptcy. It's like you can't, you can't fix this broken machine. It just has to be disposed. And that's where God's judgment came on Israel. So similar but distinct events is something to be aware of as you read through the Gospels. Another thing to be aware of is where different levels of information are provided on the same event. Again, this may at first appear, when we encounter the situation, it may appear to be a contradiction, but it's not actually. Let me give you two examples. Someone might say, for instance, Matthew 8 says two demoniacs had the legion of demons in the country of the Gerasenes. But Mark 5 and Luke 8 mention only one demoniac with the legion of demons. So we've got a contradiction. No, again, the solution here is simple. There really were two demoniacs. But it wasn't inaccurate for Mark or Luke to just report one. For simplicity's sake, they chose to focus on only one of the two characters. What they reported about that one was still accurate. Matthew just gave extra information on that event that um, Matthew or that Mark and Luke did not. If you say, well, are you sure? Well, just consider. We do the same thing in our own communication today. For example, you might report to someone that you bought some cookies from a Girl Scout who came to your door. Even though, usually, multiple Girl Scouts appear um, appear at the door at the same time. You don't have to mention, though, if you say, oh, I bought I bought some girl, um, I bought some cookies from a Girl Scout. You don't have to mention the other Girl Scouts or even their accompanying parents. You don't have to be like, technically, I bought it from their parents and the other Girl Scouts all at the same time. No, it's, it's still accurate for you to just mention one seller, and it's a simpler way to convey your meaning. If someone wants to mention the others, that's fine, but you don't have to. Or consider how we often refer to Paul's missionary journeys. We say Paul preached and established churches. Paul did this. Paul did that. But was it only Paul? What about Timothy and Silas? They were there too. Shouldn't we say Paul and Silas preached? Or Paul and Timothy established churches? We could, but we don't have to. It would still be accurate without mentioning the others who were part of that event. The point about what happened and what Paul did is still clear. So it is with these two demoniacs. Just because one writer gives extra information on the situation doesn't mean that the other writers are being false. They just, they weren't at, they didn't go to that same level of information as the one. One more example of this. Matthew 8 says that after learning that his beloved slave was desperately sick, a centurion came to Jesus and implored Jesus to heal the servant or to heal the slave. So this, the centurion came to Jesus. But Luke 7 says that the centurion did not come, but he sent friends in his stead. He sent Jewish friends on his behalf. And then in a later message, the centurion tells Jesus, don't come to my house. I'm not worthy for you to come under my roof. I didn't even feel worthy to come to you myself. But just say the word and my slave will be healed. Now, they could look at this and be like, oh, is this a contradiction? Skeptic might be like, aha, see, one says he came, the other one says he didn't come. But again, there's really no contradiction here. It's just another example of one author giving extra information and one author just keeping things simpler. This time, Luke is the one who decides to give extra information that Matthew does not. 
But what Matthew writes is still true. Luke just explains the means of the centurion's coming to Jesus. The centurion came via his friends. Unless you say, I don't know about that. Again, we do the same thing. We do the same thing in our own communication. Let's say I took a test in one of my classes and the teacher grades it. But because he's sick, a substitute is the one in class who actually hands the test back to me. It would still be accurate for me to say, my teacher gave me back my test. Even though technically my teacher didn't give it to me, it was the substitute who did on behalf of the teacher as an intermediary. Or again, we may talk about Paul writing his letter to the Romans. We would all affirm that. Did Paul write his letter to the, did Paul write to the Romans? He did. But technically, Paul didn't write it because Romans 16.22 says that Tur- Tertius and Emanuenses was the one who actually wrote the letter at Paul's direction. So Paul dictated the letter and someone else wrote it. But is it inaccurate to say that Paul wrote Romans? Of course not. That's not inaccurate because essentially Paul did write Romans, even though it was via a secretary. So back to the centurion. There's no inaccuracy in saying that the centurion came to Jesus, as Matthew does, because in essence, the centurion did come to Jesus via the intercession of his friends. Just one author chose to give more specific information, while one author chose to keep things a little simpler. So, we do have differences in the Gospels, but these differences are not truly contradictory. We can can believe what the Gospels declare. So, just coming back to our main question, uh, our main questions today. Like, or... This, this lesson has all been about, can we believe the gospel truth? Can we believe the four gospels? We certainly can. The gospels were written to bring us to belief in Jesus Christ as Lord and Savior, and to strengthen our faith and understanding after becoming saved. God has given, through the gospels, abundant witness to the life and work of Jesus. Not two witnesses, not three witnesses, but four. These works feature unique perspectives and emphases, but all harmonize perfectly with each other, and the rest of scripture in declaring the good news about Jesus. Now, the differences of the Gospels are not true contradictions. They're just manifestations of the special perspectives of each writer. The differences enhance, rather than denigrate, the trustworthiness of these accounts. And you, and as we just talked about, two differences are worth highlighting when it comes to the Gospels and, and making sure we don't see contradictions where there are none, Whenever we see two similarly reported events that are actually distinct from one another, and when there is a difference in the level of information given in two writings about the same event. Wow, we actually got through almost everything. Questions? Uh, Any quick questions before we uh, turn to application? Yeah. Mm Mm-hmm. Yeah, that is true, uh, to repeat your comment, Rob. When we do encounter these differences, it does make us actually think the think about the text a little bit more. It's kind of like a principle of exegesis that's true in general, that whenever we come to a problem, something that, that seems like a contradiction or just difficult in the text, many people will instantly say, oh, there's something wrong with the text. That, you know, this is what the liberal scholars do. See, there's a problem in the text. It's an inconsistency, something inaccurate. But rather, when we say, actually, let me just see, if this is really true, how could I possibly work this out? We come to a 
uh, a very maturing conclusion. We actually work through the problems of the text rather than just throw up our hands. Because there is a solution to each problem. And we do grow in our understanding and in our, and in our maturity as we wrestle through those. Yes, Steve. Yeah, yeah. Thanks, Steve. Um, the the metaphor of the the chord is is one that's often applied to the to the gospels as a harmony, and it, it is true. Yeah, it is like a beautiful chord or a beautiful piece of music when you have the the four different parts coming together. And your other point about <laughs> it's a little it's a little silly for us to be like, oh, we're the ones who found the contradiction, because the other guys before us were so were so ignorant and, and foolish. No, I, the human mind has has consistently been one to investigate issues. So if we think the issues that we we see through the text are are, are the uh, are we think we're the first one to deal with those? No, people have been dealing with those questions for a long time. It's like someone was asking me the other day. Um, well, how can we believe the six day creation because you had light before the sun? Like that that couldn't possibly be if if the author meant the the text literally. Well, that issue is that question is not unique to today. People were asking that question even back in the early church. And there was a response to that question, which was simply, uh, God can create light without a sun. That's, that's not that hard. So yeah, that's a good reminder, Steve. We should not think that we are, we are so much better than those who came before us. It is true that we have more resources and our technology has advanced, but it's not like the people back then were irrational and they just accepted things that were obviously contradictory. No, no. That's a, that's a silly assumption. Just a few application questions as we close today. A, a lot of this uh, discussion has been directly application related, apologetic related, but just a few more things to think about. Which is better, reading a harmony text of all the gospels or reading each gospel by itself? Well, the answer is each have their benefits. A harmony will give you, if you just read through a, a collection of everything together, We'll give you a fuller understanding of Christ's ministry, help you see the connections between the Gospels. But don't just say, oh, I want to read the Harmony and I don't want to read the individual Gospels anymore. Because let's remember, the authors had a reason for selecting what they did. They didn't include everything because they had a purpose. They had a specific intent in their writing. They chose the details they did to include and they chose details to exclude. So we shouldn't rush to fill in all the details or all, all the blanks in each particular Gospel. There's a reason Mark didn't say such and such. There's a reason Luke didn't say such and such. So let's appreciate that by just, um, by just focusing on Mark's gospel or just focusing on Luke's gospel so we can understand what Luke was saying. 
or what Mark was saying. So again, th there's benefit to each. In our class here, because we're doing a chronological study, we might end up doing more of a harmony topical approach rather than a um, more confined to a particular gospel. But just know that there is an important benefit from reading each gospel in its in its own um, in its own context, all by itself. Number two, what should we do with the claims of missing gospels like the Gospel of Mary or Gospel of Barnabas or Gospel of Thomas? Well, there's a reason they weren't included by the early church. Their, their claims had to be assessed, and they were assessed pri primarily on the agreement with the, the primarily on the agreement with the rest of the Bible and on their historical reliability. What kind of clues in the text did they indicate whether these are historically reliable or wh whether they were written when they claimed to be written? The four Gospels are in perfect agreement with the rest of the scripture, and they pass the historical reliability tests. All these other Gospels, so-called Gospels, they don't. They contradict scripture, or they just can't, they can't um, hold up to uh, scrutiny whenever they claim to be written at a certain date or by a certain person, and they couldn't possibly have been. So we don't have to worry, oh, was there a missing gospel? No, no. Number three, if you are challenged by a skeptic with a charge of contradictions between the different gospels, what is the best way to respond to those accusations? Well, first, ask them to show you what the contradiction is. You know, people will sometimes make a general claim about the Bible without actually having any specific examples. So ask them, oh, what contradiction are you talking about? And if they tell you, go to, your, go to the Bible and actually look Look at the passages in which that supposed contradiction occurs. Many times, by simply reading the two passages, you can show the person there is no true contradiction. And we did that in some respects today. But even if you open a passage, you read it, and you're not sure about how to explain the contradiction, don't feel like your, your faith has been shattered or you suddenly lost. Just let the person know you don't yet know the answer. Tell them how you will attempt to find out and let them know how you will get back to them about it. Never feel bad about not knowing the answer to every question. You do want to be ready to make a defense to those who, give, who ask you to give an account of the hope that is in you. That's what scripture commands us to do. And you also want to be clear with each person that you are confident in God's word. But we're all growing and learning, and none of us has total knowledge. We all press on for the prize, but even where we don't know something, we can still let the person know, I will find this out and get back to you. Well, that's it for this week. Next week, we broach the question, who do the Gospels reveal Jesus to be? Thank you for your patience today as we work through the technical issues. Let's pray as we close. God, I thank you for these people. I thank you for these Gospels, that they're trustworthy. They are a beautiful harmony, God. We thank you that we have these abundant witnesses and even these varied witnesses about the life of your son Jesus and his ministry on our behalf. Thank you that we have salvation by trusting in Jesus. Lord Jesus, thank you for coming and saving us by your gracious work, doing what we could never do and securing for us eternal life with you. What a blessing. And I pray that people will continue to be blessed today as they worship and as they hear more of the word. In Jesus' name, amen. Thank you, guys. See you next week.